Ah, thank Crunchy, it's the weekend, plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily, I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed. Dare I think it, could it happen, could it be? And he said, gents, let me introduce you to the Endurance. And there was this amazing high-frequency sonar image of the Endurance from above. It was absolutely perfect, you could see the, the complete outline of, of the endurance and she was intact. I mean, when I when I told this story to some friends of mine a while back, they said to me, oh yeah, but you know, now people need a certain standard. And I think, okay, fair enough. But when you marry that with the other option of people sleeping on the street, I just yeah, think, yeah. That's, that's, that's just nonsense. The perfect mash is the place to start with potatoes, I think in general, you know, and to me, the perfect mash was watching my mother doing it on the floor and lots of butter. And we'll start on today with Claire Byrne. After Government Minister Roderick O'Gorman's comments about running out of space to house Ukrainians fleeing the war, Sean Boyce, chairman of Rossler Harbour's Friends of Ukraine, was talking to Claire. You've been saying, and you've said it to us here in the programme for a long time, that there's been a lack of coordination from the government on the Ukrainian refugees coming here. Do you say that this is what we're seeing as a result of that now? Absolutely, Claire, yeah, and good morning to you once again. Thanks for, for talking to us. Look, uh, as we've repeated over and over again on, on your show, Claire, the lack of planning, um, now we're seeing the result of it. Back in March, the government said that they had identified 500 properties, that we were very, very likely to see 68,000 Ukrainian refugees, and we were, uh, you know, prepared to take 200,000 we're at somewhere between forty-five and 55,000, depending on what, what figures you're using now. Uh, we're struggling. You know, City West is over capacity. And it's a consistent lack of planning that has, has led us to here. You know, the last time we spoke, it was about the student accommodation issue. And I feel we have taken a very naive approach to this whole thing and just haven't planned it properly at all. Mm-hmm. Do you think now, given what was said this morning, that the government is sending the message to people who might be thinking of coming here from Ukraine and from other countries not to come? Absolutely. And, and the minister said that himself, to be honest. He said anyone that's safe in another you know, European country should probably stay there and not come to Ireland. But... You know, at the end of the day, a lot of these people have close friends and relatives here in Ireland who are being very well looked after and and, and are being encouraged to come to Ireland. And, you know, people who arrive on our shores, obviously NGOs like yourself, we want to give them a good response and a good welcome. Uh, we we have no uh, people arriving uh, yesterday because of, of the, the the ship was was delayed due to weather. But we'll have people coming tomorrow again, and I feel that it's it's ourselves and groups like ours who are going to be left, uh, you know, holding the baby on this one. To be honest with you, because you know what, what do we say when they when they when they're told that they've nowhere to go? All the accommodation locally is full. The, the city west was used um, by our local authority as a almost an overflow mechanism when when people couldn't be housed. That's now full. It's closed. And I suppose the airport was mentioned there that people could be housed there overnight. But we're in Rosslare in a tent inside a secure zone where people simply cannot stay because they're they're inside a, a an ISPS zone, so they cannot stay in. They have to leave the port. And where are they going to go? So you know, it's it's very naive. The lack of planning, as I said before. We're now seeing the result of that. We've seen face-to-face 4,500 people coming in through Ross Lair. Thankfully, they've all been housed either locally or throughout the country. But what's going to happen to these people now? And I suppose what, what are the I mean, government going to do? Are they like, Sean, tomorrow now, when the boat docks and the people get off, where are they going to go? 
that's a huge question. You know, he said we're not at full, full capacity yet, that the most vulnerable will be looked after. But my point on this is each and every one of these people is very vulnerable. They've flown, uh, you know, they've, they, they've evacuated a war-torn country um, and arrived having travelled across the whole of Europe, which is no easy task in itself. And they've arrived on our door having come through, you know, a, a southerly gale now today on, on the ship from Cherbourg. And they arrive with us and, and they are very vulnerable. So, you know, I've no idea where they're going to go. We'll do our best locally and work with the local authority to find as much accommodation as we can. But I want to know where those 500 properties that the government identified back in March are. I want to know where the plan is that they, they you know, Minister O'Gorman and Minister McConnell back in March and all the, the press and all the radio shows were talking about these big figures. So where's the plan that was following on from that? And my honest opinion is that nobody wants to take this on and, and run with it. You know, like a Neffet-style committee that I spoke about on yeah. several occasions, nobody wants to take it on for fear that it's all going to go wrong and they'd be left with it then. Okay. And that's already happening right now. Sean Boyce talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. Then later on the live line, Liz Crummy called Joe. Liz Crummy, Liz, good afternoon. You were listening to uh, Minister for Children, etc. Roger Gorgorman in the morning around where he basically said there's a, there is a possibility the Ukrainians will end up on the streets next not the streets of Kiev, but the streets of Dublin next week because we're running out, we've run out of space. Um, first of all, Liz, did you did you offer the Red Cross accommodation? Can I ask you that? Good afternoon, Joe. Joe. I offered accommodation. Immediately the war broke out. I contacted the Red Cross. Okay. I did not hear from the Red Cross for four months. I tried ringing them a couple of times and I was told, oh, they'd get back to me. I did have one preliminary phone call and it was very much a tick-the-box questionnaire and there was a little bit of a hesitation when I mentioned that um, they would be sharing a bathroom. And I thought, well, you know, these people are coming from basements, war-torn, Ukraine. I'm pretty sure sharing a bathroom is on top of their list. Well, it looks like next week, and I don't mean to be blunt here, but it looks like next week, Liz, according to the the minister, they'd be sharing a bush in St. Stephen's Green to pee in. Exactly. I just think the whole situation has been so badly managed. So stick, stick with the government... Uh, line force. They they gave the the task to the Red Cross. The Red Cross rang you. Are you have you shared bathroom? You have. And what happened next? Well, I never heard from them again. And then I sourced my own uh, Ukrainian through a contact of a friend and a lady Yelena out in Kalini. And uh, shout out to Yelena. She uh, by default became uh, a mediator between Ukrainians mm-hmm. from her own country. And Ireland. So I put out my situation. I said, look, I have adult sons at home, so it would be more preferable for, you know, a teenage boy. Okay. And uh, I got a mother and a teenage boy, and they're with me for six months now. They wow. arrived on the 18th of April, wow. and I'm really, really annoyed at how the situation has been handled. So you, organi- mean, you organise this, you, you organise this yourself? And I let the Red Cross know. I let the Red Cross know that I had housed them and that they could take me off the list. I have never heard, not one contact since. And tell us, how's it been for the six months? It's been a wonderful experience. Brilliant, Uh, brilliant. Really enhancing experience for the whole family. Wow. I mean, I have a busy household. 
Um, I have two adult sons who obviously can't move out of home. Yeah. I have two, uh, a son and daughter living away. So when they come home from London now, they have to sleep in the sitting room because the Ukrainians are taking up their bedrooms. But they don't mind because it's such, okay. a, it's such a wonderful experience. And how they have, have been... How have your how have your Ukrainian the the mother and is it mother and son? How have they managed in terms of school or work or income? I have to say there was a lot of hard work involved. My part, okay. um, I did get a Ukrainian boy into transition year, and I have to give a shout out to Fair House Educate Together School, well done, well done. and he's now currently in fifth year. He was seventeen. He's a boy, Joe. He's a young boy to me. Yeah. And yeah. the very idea that the mother had to flee with him to keep him away from war is just horrendous. He turned 18 a couple of weeks ago and we had a great celebration. His mother, Ina, is a qualified oncology theatre nurse. Wow. Wow. She can't work, obviously, until her English is improved. She came with zero English. Her son had school English and he was her translator originally. Okay. So, in fairness, She's here six months now, and I would say she is semi-fluent and okay. well able to hold her own. And She's attending English classes now starting from Monday. Um, and as soon as she's ready, we're in the process of translating all her Ukrainian qualifications to English. I'm brilliant. doing this entirely on my own You're because there is brilliant. no facility. And what was your reaction when you heard Roderick O'Gorman this morning saying it looks like we're... Now, you can't, you can't blame the government in, the, in themselves. There's only so many things they can do. They need... Oh, they... Joe, come on, come okay. on. There are so many people facing a cost-of-living crisis. Yeah. Two things that a lot of people in my area are facing. Cost-of-living crisis and loneliness. Okay. And it is just such a wonderful thing to have people into your home that are able to contribute uh, in terms of housework or, you know, helping out and being mm -hmm. part of a family. So I just think it's great. €100 Euro a week from the government for two people? That's yeah. pretty bad. Pretty bad when you consider, it, consider what they're paying into hotels every single night. And we know hotels are no places for families. Okay. And Liz encouraged others to get involved. I live in the Fairhouse Pala Temple Oak area. Okay. There, there is ultimately a three and four bedroomed house area. Okay. There are loads of people who are single, living alone, widowed or whatever, would have plenty of space. I think they should have an open day in City West. I don't mean to denigrate the situation, but if you want to adopt a dog, you go up to the DSPCA, you talk to them, you tell them your needs, you tell them, you know, the type of age-friendly house you are, whether you need an, old, an older dog or a young pup. I mean, I'm not making comparisons. You know my point. OK, but what, I'm about, to say what about... There should be an open... Yeah. What about Garda vetting? That's always the big thing, we're told, Liz. The Garda vetting came into play for under-18-year-olds but you know what? Nobody came near me. Once I said I was on my own, I, I was open to guard vetting, but nobody came near me. I mean, they have their own separate bedrooms. Yeah, and I think, I'm sorry. It's just like you have to take people's goodwill. What about guard vetting when they're living on the streets of Dublin, Joe? I know, I know. That's hardly safe, like, is it? They're living in a family home. Yeah. You know, I really think that 
90% of people, if they went up to a one-stop shop like City West okay. and they discussed what they had available in their house, obviously my house is not set up for children. I wouldn't have taken, I wouldn't take children because my house isn't suitable for it. But it was suitable for an almost adult boy because I have adult sons there. So he just mucks in with the lads and, and, and remind, remind me again, uh, Liz, how, how did you source, how did you find, how did you connect with this family? I put out the word to friends of mine and a friend said her young lad went to school with a, a young lad whose mother was Ukrainian and the, the young lad was more or less, um, you know, kind of free in the afternoons because his mom was so busy trying to home people that were coming from Ukraine. Okay. So I met this lady and I, I contacted her by phone and she said, look, there's a mother and a 17-year-old coming into Dublin Airport. Can you meet them? That's okay. how I met them. This is, this is what the minister said on Morning Ireland. But is there a danger that in the coming weeks you're just going to run out of accommodation? Well, that, that's the situation we're, we're facing next week. Um, and as I say, we're working hard to keep the pause on on uh, on, on entry to, to, to new accommodation as short as possible. Uh, but I can't guarantee that this won't happen again go, go, going into the, the, the winter, particularly if, if, if numbers uh, r- remain as high. And I think it's important that we, again, continue to have strong communication with the Ukrainian embassy, with the Ukrainian authorities, so we can, um, you know, uh, let Ukrainians know at what times our system here is under pressure. So we are under pressure and, and again this isn't buttered any parsnips Liz but we've done proportion- no, proportionately we've done a lot better than our nearest neighbour has. I know that I know that you know, but I still think but okay, you but should you're, be able to but go you, along to ask questions. Well that's Liz there then later Joe spoke to caller John. You donated a house. I did um, last March. And to who? Sent, to through? Uh, oh, uh, to, the, uh, to the Red Cross. Okay. And uh, I didn't hear anything initially for about six weeks. And then uh, I was contacted and uh, went through all the details. And I explained the situation that there was a few things to be done to the house. Not an awful lot, but a few things. And that all seemed fine. And then I, I didn't hear anything for about three or four months. Um, in fact, I was actually... Uh, I, I think I may have even emailed them in the interim period. But when I was contacted the second time, mm-hmm. I went through everything again. Okay. And, um, uh, you know, I explained to the chap I was talking to um, where the house was and answered all of the questions. And I also explained that there was a few things that needed to be done. You know, I, I needed to check the boiler and uh, there was a shower that needed to be but, but, but John, was it habitable? Well, not immediately, but, you, you know, it would have taken maybe three or four days' work to, okay. to sort, sort it out. Um, I don't live near the house. so. That, that but you were willing... Well, when you say donate the house, what do you mean? I, I mean donate it to a Ukrainian family for a year or for as okay. long as they wanted it. Um, this is um, a three-bedroomed house. Oh, so you've got two phone calls... And well, I know, if, I know. If if this afternoon, I know that this can't be the answer to everything. But I know this yeah. afternoon, if we said on this program, we're not going to. By the way, if we said in this program, oh, there's a house in in located X. We need a boiler fix and we need a shower fix to get a Ukrainian family in. I guarantee yeah. we would have that done by Sunday evening. 
such as the generosity of Irish people. They would yeah. all, they would. You get plumbers and companies rolling in saying, we'll, we, we've done it before, another, another t- yeah, but anyway, yeah. is, is your Absolutely. house still, is the house still idle? Oh, it's still sitting there, yeah. I haven't heard, I mean, it's, it's uh, that last phone call was about, oh, maybe it could be three months now. Um, but, but the thing that puzzled me was just as we went off the phone, again, I reiterated what needed to be done. And the guy oh. said to me, well, you know, don't be in any rush to do any of that work because this could take some time yet. And I thought, well, you know, maybe yeah, they are. Then we have the minister on the programme this morning and he's, he's telling it as it is. We're in. We're, the Ukrainian people are in trouble, as we know. But they're they're in yeah. trouble if they come here because we've run out of accommodation. Yeah, um, but you see, I, I, personally, yeah. I think that's a nonsense because okay. there is there is so many unoccupied houses and buildings around the country in every single town. I'm driving through Limerick City as we speak, and I'm looking around, and there's lots of houses. You look at them and you say, yeah, okay, it's, it, there's nobody living in that, but it it could be refurbished pretty quickly. You know, mm. I mean, when I when I told this story to some friends of mine a while back, they said to me, "Oh, yeah, but you know, now people need a certain standard, and they won't take that house unless it's up to spec, unless it's up to, unless it's got double glazed windows, unless it's got this, unless it's got that." And I think, okay, fair enough. But when you marry that with the other option of people sleeping on the street, I just yeah, think yeah. that's 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 just nonsense. You know, it's it's. Uh, like I said, there is so many unoccupied buildings and churches around the country. Why aren't they taken up? That's John on the live line with Joe Duffy. And it was the morning after, so Ryan had an eye on the political situation in the UK. What did they say? That only somebody, <laughs> there's some very funny uh, things going around about what's happening over in the UK. Um, only four Prime Ministers to Christmas was one of my favourites and we'll see but uh, watching Liz Truss outside Downing Street yesterday it was kind of pathetic and uh, I use that in the oldest world usage of the expression it's just sad um, and pathetic and Boris Johnson is currently dusting his toes in the sands of the Dominican Republic um, with his family um, and they're saying he's cutting his holiday short to return to the UK to, to do the soundings as to whether or not he should or could or would run for the leadership. And if you, a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, I would have said, that'll never happen. This time, yeah, probably will. I, I, I just think anything could happen now. And it's between himself and Rishi Sunak, I think, essentially. Uh, the You have to have 100 nominations, that is, uh, MPs really behind you. So very few people are going to get that, reach that threshold. And if only one of them gets it, as I understand it, they get the gig. If two of them go over on 100, um, they go up against each other. So we'll watch it with with with, with enormous interest. Uh, Henry Deeds writing this morning, at 1.33pm, the black door swung open and Downing Street's shortest serving tenant was ejected onto the pavement. Liz Trust tiptoed towards the waiting media hordes with the nervous tread of a doddery dowager entering an ice-cold swimming bath. She wore an enigmatic Mona Lisa smile. So strange, so unfitting, but so clearly designed to mask a maelstrom of emotions. Her dauntless self-belief, so handy in campaigning, such a handicap when misapplied, was once again an eye-popping show. No apology, no regrets, just a promise to be out and gone by this day next week. This makes her, of course... 
writes Henry Deeds, the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history and a pub quiz answer to echo down the ages. It's a pub quiz answer. I've heard that before and it's a, it's a, good, it's a good point. Unlike Boris's defenestration, he writes earlier this year, there were no protesters, no broadcasters, helicopters clattering above, no gathering of tearful supporters. Even that stop exit moron had failed to drag his ghetto blaster around in time. A cherished publicity opportunity missed. As autumn leaves danced around her, trust let it be known, she'd already informed the king of her intentions. And over the telephone job, we later learnt, Dear, oh dear, was his majesty's exclamation when the PM recently saw him. Dear, oh dear, indeed. And so ends the truss chapter of the premiership in the UK. And so begins uh, what will only be a fascinating race for over the next uh, six or seven days. Could all be over on Monday if only one of them gets 100 votes and they're in. Um, but we'll have a look at that and see what happens. This is the thing, when, when Kwasi Kwarteng was coming back from the IMF meeting in Washington last week, <laughs> the political nerds like myself were mapping his, his flight in the flight path over the Atlantic Ocean saying, where is he now? He's now over Canadian airspace and now he's over the Atlantic and now he's coming through Ireland and landing. So I'd say it'll be much the same with Boris and uh, his return to the UK. It has to be remembered Liz trusts as a human being, says Mary. God only knows how she's feeling. The eyes in the world are on her, calling her a failure. And we have to remember to be kind, no matter what. I do understand the seriousness of the situation, the mistakes made, but take a moment to imagine what she's feeling this morning. As you said, she's going down in history for all the wrong reasons. It's true. And because she's so cold, it makes it harder, I think, because she hasn't... She, there was no empathy and there was no, no great communication abilities. No mention of, you know, her husband or, you know, just saying, you know, thanks to him for standing by me or nothing. Even when she... You know, he was sitting beside her uh, when she got the gig and she leapt up, didn't kind of look at him or squeeze his hand and say, we did it. Or It was very striking, I thought, you know, because that person clearly would be, uh, I would have thought, as important as the job you've just achieved. Uh, so it, I think she's made it hard on herself to be loved. Uh, but I do take your point completely. She is a human and I no doubt she went back inside and uh, hopefully had a large glass of wine last night or, 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 or a cup of tea um, and... Um, let it all out. Ryan Tiberty there then. Claire Byrne was also debating what might come next as Boris Johnson jetted back from his holiday in the Caribbean. It's been less than 24 hours since the premiership of Liz Truss came to a screeching halt. This morning, the British Conservative Party fell to its lowest ever poll rating of 14%. Now, the challenge for the shell-shocked party lies in replacing her with a prime minister and leader who can stop the rot, reclaim market credibility and steady the pound. For more on this, I'm joined firstly by Jerry Scott, political reporter with The Times. There really is only one place to start with all of this, and it's with the fact that Boris Johnson is apparently on his way back as we speak from his Caribbean holiday. Are people saying that he is really seeking to come back as Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, when when Boris resigned, um, I was going to say earlier this year, but, you know, earlier this season, um, really, really not very long ago at all, um, it really felt like there was a sense of unfinished business there. Um, you would probably say, hasta la vista, as he went. So um, I, I do think there is serious talk about this. Um, there's kind of two sides to it, right? I, I don't think it's in kind of contention that he'd like another tilt at the job, another go. Um, but it's also going to be very difficult for him. He's got 
Privileges Committee investigation hanging over him, and I don't imagine we'll see any actual public declaration from Boris Johnson unless he is absolutely confident that he hits that magic number 100 backers um, that he would need to get through. And let's not forget that there were 62 MPs who resigned following the Partygate revelations, which led up led ultimately up to him resigning. But there are others in the party, perhaps even amongst the 62 who resigned, who say that his track record when it comes to winning seats in elections means that they're prepared to hold their nose and, and go for him again. Yeah, absolutely. And like, look, this is all on the backdrop of, you know, you mentioned some uh, polling numbers there. There's various numbers flying around that, that is pointing to the Conservatives getting wiped out at the next general election. Um, so it's a fallback on someone they know has been um, a massive electoral asset in the past. Whether that is still the case, I do think is up for debate. If you look at some focus groups, the kind of main word that still comes up when Boris Johnson is mentioned is the word liar. So I do think things have moved on slightly. Um, but, you know, it's the kind of, uh, you know, how can the Conservatives achieve the least worst outcome in 2024 for some people? That is, uh, that is Boris Johnson returning to number 10. OK, let's look at the, the competitions. There seems to be three main contenders at the moment. Boris Johnson, if we, as we have been discussing, Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt. And I'm looking at the uh, political blog from Guido Fawkes, which has a table on here with estimates around who he who is supporting whom. Now, we have to say that nobody has declared yet, so these numbers are very much unofficial. But according to what I'm seeing here, Boris Johnson has 52. To Rishi Sunak 49, Penny Mordaunt 18, all likely to change. Big health warning on those numbers. Do you think that's representative, though, of where their support is at the moment? Um, I would caution against uh, the Guido table. I'm not saying they haven't done their homework and checked this with people. I'm sure they absolutely have. But, um, you know, there's a lot of anonymous people on that list for quite good reasons. You know, party whips, etc. can't publicly back people, but they are listed on that sheet. So it's not that easily verifiable. On our own sheet that we're running at Times, currently you've got Boris Johnson on 28, you've got Rishi Sunak on 46, and then you've got Penny Morden trailing behind on 16. And these are either publicly backed or independently confirmed by the Times. Um, So... That gives an indication of where we are. Rishi Sunak, of course, got the most uh, support from MPs the last time around when this happened over the summer. Let's see where we get to. But I think what we're going to see today is lots more MPs throw their weight behind their preferred candidate. Um, and we'll see some official campaign launches as well, I imagine. OK, and any any sounds, noises uh, coming from the Rishi Sunak side of things? He hasn't said anything today? He's not said anything yet, but it's very clear that a campaign is kind of underway. He's got his allies out on the broadcast rounds this morning. Um, you know, even the old uh, Ready for Rishi campaign material from over the summer has been relaunched, videos out, WhatsApp groups set up, etc., etc. I think what will be interesting today is um, Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary who resigned just, oh God, a few days ago now, has said she's going to be making a statement later on today. Now, no one has publicly backed her yet. She did stand last time and she was popular with the Tory right. I think the Tory right has a bit of a problem in this in this um, race if that vote is split. So, look, let's see where it goes. It's all up in the air at the moment. Jerry Scott, a political journalist with The Times London from Today with Claire Byrne. 
And in the morning, tales of daring do. Shipwreck hunter Mensum Bound was talking to Ryan Tuberty about the remarkable moment when he and his team found Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance. We kind of need to go back to the 21st of November uh, 1915 and we are now thinking about Ernest Shackleton, the hostile seas of the Antarctic, the crew watching this beautiful ship, the Endurance, in the silence as the stern rose 20 feet in the air before disappearing. Miraculously, all 28 of the crew all entered legend as they escaped. We're thinking of Tom Crean and Tim McCarthy, but also, of course, of Ernest Shackleton. Where was the boat? Let's find the man who led the expedition to find it successfully. Menson Bound. Good morning, Menson. Yeah, good morning, Ryan. Uh, Ryan, I didn't lead the expedition. I was, you know, I was the director of exploration, but there was an amazing team behind me. I appreciate that. We won't get lost in the ice flows of of nuance. Uh, Let's uh, get down to business and talk about this idea of of the expedition expedition itself and how you ended up near or thereabouts to the top of it. Okay, so where do you want to start? The big story. Of course. Okay, well, let's let's take it to... We'll go back in time a bit uh, to uh, Ernest Shackleton and your yeah. interest in him. How about that? Okay, that's a good place to start. Um, I should explain that I come from the Falkland Islands and uh, Shackleton was in the Falklands three times. And, uh, you know, everybody in the Falklands is a, is a Shackleton rather than a Scott fan. I was given a book about Shackleton when I would have been about, uh, it was 1959, 1960. Uh, It was a Sunday school prize book, uh, and I actually read it. And my father used to talk about Shackleton all the time. And believe it or not, we have this rather tenuous family connection with Shackleton. When he was in the Falklands with Tom Crean uh, and, and Worsley, he actually stayed at a place called the First and Last. It was mm. kind of a bar bedding establishment, which was run by my great-great-grandfather. So, and we actually have, within the family, although the book is in, in Canada these days, we have the visitor's book. It's got all the signatures in it. Okay, so it, it, you've got a very strong connection to, to that as such. And then you're, in terms of uh, exploration, I mean, if Indiana Jones was going down mines, you were going a more, nauti- <laughs> a more nautical route. Tell me a little bit about that, that interest in your life. Yeah, well, that goes back to the Falklands also. I, I was brought up uh, in Port Stanley, but also spent all my time in one of the outlying islands called New Island. And I worked on the, the schooners and catchers, which we had out there. These are working ships. I mean, uh, I don't really have great memories of them. They're pretty scary. You know, there I was, eight or nine years old, with three other men, all of whom were drunk, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, So it was kind of a scary environment. But back in Port Stanley, we had, the first thing I saw as I opened my curtains in the morning were eight to nine halt Cape Horners, you know, the ships that used to, you know, spend two or three months battling their way to windward off Cape Horn, trying to escape the... Uh, the Atlantic and get up into the into the Pacific, and a lot of those ships didn't make it. You know, it was you know day after day struggling to find that slant, and that was what beat down both men and ships. And they used to turn around and before the wind sort of hobble their way to the Falkland Islands, which were the downwind companions of Cape Horn, and many of them were condemned there as unseaworthy. So as a kid, you know, I, I spent my time with my father clambering over these old you know, Hulk Cape Horners. And so I always had this fascination of the sea. And eventually I became a, a marine archaeologist. And 
you know, back in, what was it, uh, very early 80s when I was 27, 28 years old, I started directing underwater excavations. And it just went from there, one wreck after another for 32 consecutive years, just excavating, surveying, evaluating ships. But of course, the, uh, you know, the, the, the endurance, I mean, that for me was the absolute pinnacle. Yes. But again, as I said a few moments before, there was just this absolutely amazing team of people that I worked with, not on one expedition, but but two. You know, there was the great John Shears, there was Nico Vincent, the most uh, amazing underwater engineer I've ever worked with. There was a guy called Thomas Channing, a lady around the back deck called Claire Vincent, and there's another guy there, J.C. Kailan, who worked with me on expeditions elsewhere, you know, on oceans across the world. You know, they were there all together. It was just this incredible team of people. So as a shipwreck hunter, Ryan asked Menson about getting the call to find Shackleton's endurance. The story goes back 10 years, mm. 10 years from last August. I met with a, a, a dear friend of mine who's, who's absolutely passionate about ships and the sea and everything to do with the sea. And we met in, in, a, in a Cafe Nero in, in South Kensington to talk about wrecks. And the wreck I wanted to talk about, he had his own ones, but the one I was keen to talk about, and I think he was too, was the Terra Nova, which was the ship which carried Scott on his voyage of no return, if you yes. like. Uh, the year was 2012, which was the centenary of, of, of Scott's death, and the Natural History Museum was putting on the massive Scott show exhibition. And they asked me, you know, could I find the Terra Nova for that ex- exhibition? And as it happened, I had some very good coordinates for its loss. And I said, yeah, you know, give me the right kit and give me seven days. I will find the Terra Nova for mm. you. And that that's, you know, really what what we're there to talk about. But believe it or not, he was holding the tables. I went over to get the coffee. And as I was sort of thumbing my, my way, as I was waiting for the coffee, I was sort of looking at the, the complimentary newspapers there. And there on page seven of the Times was an article, just a short piece it was actually, but it was headline, Karen Over Found. Uh, and really? At that moment, it was, oh, I just could not believe it. And I went back to the table. My friend said to me, you know, what's wrong? And, and, and I told him. And he sort of listened to what I had to say, and I showed him the piece, and he sort of said, well, well, what about the insurance? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the moment of inception yeah. 10 years ago. And, yeah. and am I right in saying that, that 10 years ago, Manson, you, you were, you, the prospect of it seemed not impossible, but certainly technologically unlikely? Yeah, and the grand irony of that story is that I then tried to talk him out of it. You know, I said, hey, you know, it's, it's too deep. It's under the perennial pack ice of the Weddell Sea. I mean, this is, you know, this is madness. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he's the kind of guy who, thank God, you know, he just loves the challenge. And uh, he, he then sort of set about assembling all the fleet, you know, the, the fleet of um, search vehicles and all the team because, you know, you need a very well-trained group of technicians to operate these vehicles. And eventually he and his wife and me and my wife, we, we met for a dinner in, in, in the Cotswells. And at the end of the dinner, he says, Benson, we're ready for it. And he tasked me with finding the ship. And another guy called John Kingsford, uh, an old friend of mine from 
decades back, an old salvage guy, amazing diver. But he's also CEO of this great company called uh, DOS, uh, Deep Ocean Search. Mm-hmm. And, and John, I went into the archives then to do all the research to define the search area. John had to go out and find a, uh, a suitable ship and you know, bring the hardware together. And you know, eventually we, we formed a committee and it kind of went from there. But yeah, it, it was just this um, transforming moment in my life. You know, I was weaned on Shackleton, as I said. Yes. You know, to actually, you know, reach that point where we were all going out to look for the endurance. I mean, life doesn't get better, oh. Ryan. I tell you. And Ryan asked Menson about the moment of finding the ship. The camera going down, what ten thousand feet below the surface of the sea. That's right. Uh, you're standing there looking at, I presume, a screen to say, what is the camera looking at? And suddenly you see the letter E, maybe N, <laughs> maybe D. And you're thinking, what are you thinking? Tell me about what's going through your no, mind. It, it was, uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, just thinking back to that moment, you know, it, uh, the, the hairs on the back of my neck start to rise again. Yeah, we approached the ship. This is the archaeological dive after this first found, the archaeological inspection dive. And we approached from the stern. So the first thing I saw was actually the, the ship's rudder mm. laying in the mud under the tuck of the stern. And, you know, it was when the rudder was ripped from the ship, uh, that was the beginning of all their problems. Because at that moment, then, then the water began to, to get into the hull and then became battle to stop the water and save the ship. And, but it was all to do with the rudder. And there the rudder was just laying there in the sediment so innocently. And you could see where it was ripped from the, from the end post. I mean, the, 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 the break was still there, absolutely fresh, like it was yesterday. You could see the torn wood. And then we sort of moved upwards over the the back of the ship so that you suddenly there across the stern was, just as you described, the name of the ship, Endurance. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was just spelt out in these raised metallic letters. And it was arcing over the the uh, the great Polaris star. You, you, she was originally called the Polaris by the Norwegians who built her. You know, but at that moment, I, I mean, it, it, you know, I was just quivering with excitement. And then we moved up over the taffrail of the stern, and you're looking down into the well deck at the very back of the ship, and there was the ship's wheel, absolutely perfect. And you could see behind the wheel, a companionway, the doors were open going down to the accommodation deck. And, and, and get this, the, the, the portholes of Shackleton's cabin were there. Wow. You know, it was just wow. I'm looking at the portholes into the great man's cabin. You know, it was like, uh, it was myself, there was a cameraman there, there was a guy at the sticks, the pilot, a guy called uh, Robbie, and then there was two data analysts. And, you know, we were all just so excited in this tiny little box in the back of the ship we were on. You know, it was just... So do you, yeah, do, you all become, do you all become seven-year-old boys and girls going to see Santa Claus in Lapland? I mean, is that that sense of awe? Uh, there's an element of that. Yeah, but this like is it, yeah. A, a profoundly professional team, you know, highly trained. Sure. So, yeah, there is that moment where everybody whoops and high-fives and they slap each other in their back. And, you know, that yeah, that happens. It sounds lovely. Uh, but then, as one of them said to me, you know, professionalism kicked in and there was okay. a lot to do and they're thinking oh my god you know we got so much battery power on the on the vehicle we got a lot to do uh you know the, the crazy thing is that myself and my close friend and colleague john were john were not actually on the ship at the moment of discovery mm-hmm. uh, we were actually on the ice at that time and we were uh there, there was an iceberg in the flow about i don't know 
kilometre and a half, two kilometres away. And we've been talking for a couple of days about getting off the ship and stretching our, our legs. And that morning when I drew back my curtains and there I was looking at this iceberg. So we'd been with it for a couple of days uh, in the flow, but overnight we changed position within the flow. Uh, and there she was so close to us. And so we decided we'd walk to the berg and uh, we'd set off at about, I don't know, quarter to four in the afternoon, something like that. And it was at five past four that this image appeared on the sonar screens, which, you know, was very clear. The signature was really strong and you know, they had little little doubt that they'd found the wreck. But because I'd switched channels, they were not able to contact us on the handheld radios we had with us. And it wasn't until we got back to the ship. We we got onto the ship, and they were absolutely freezing cold. I'm trying to get out of my kit. And then one of the cadets comes up to me, and he says, the, you know, Captain Bengu uh, asked me to give his compliments to you and say that your your presence is required on the bridge immediately. And just as he said that, the tannoy system crackles to life and it was shears and bounds, shears and bounds to the bridge immediately, to the bridge immediately. And we'd never been spoken to like that before. So we knew that something massive had happened, whether it was good or bad, we didn't know. But we both had had these really vivid, raw memories of three years before when when we lost the, the search vehicle. And our first thought was, oh, God, no, it's happened again. And we're, we're running for the bridge. And at that moment, I just happened to see one of the data analysts, a French guy, uh, standing in the doorway there, and he had a smile on his face like a front end of an old Hudson. <laughs> and at that moment, I knew, okay, you know, if, if they just lost the vehicle, you know, those guys would not have been smiling. They, they, their faces would have been absolutely ashen. In fact, they wouldn't have been there at all. They'd been, you know, in the control booth. Uh, you know, so we're, we're running up to the, to the bridge, and I'm beginning to think, you know, Dare I think it? Could it happen? Could it be? And and we tumbled out onto the bridge, and there was Nico, the the you know the guy who's in charge of subsea operations, and he thrust his phone into my into my face, and he said, "Gents, let me introduce you to the endurance." And there was this amazing high frequency sonar image of the endurance from above. It was absolutely perfect. You could see the the complete outline. Of, of the endurance, and she was intact. Men's Unbound from The Ryan Tuberty Show. The soothing splendour of mash or the joy of the perfect roasty. Is there anything more comforting than the potato? Well, in the morning, Chef Brian McDermott was talking to Claire Byrne about taters. I could listen all day. Brian McDermott loves potatoes. I do, Claire. I was actually just reared <laughs> in and amongst them. Our whole entire family was. Did you grow them? Yeah, my mum, um, I suppose her, my grandfather, he had a potato farm, over 300 acres. So there was always potatoes everywhere from seed to grow. And there was a conversation taking place. And mm. my mum, who was from a family of 14, her and her sister actually cooked for over 100 personnel on the farm during harvest season. And you can guess what they cooked. Potatoes. Yeah. I'm going to talk to you about the, the varieties and the best ones and what you do with the different ones in, in a minute. But we have become um, very used to opening the pasta and, and the rice and using those quite frequently, certainly during the week. But you say that we have, have we forgotten really how good the potato can be? Yeah, absolutely. We totally have forgotten because we've been smitten by what else is available to us that looks mm-hmm. like it's easier to cook. And, you know, you look at a big potato or you look at it now and you see coloured potatoes or you see large bacon potatoes or those small little 
baby potatoes that my father-in-law always says we used to throw those out or <laughs> keep them as seed. They've now become trendy. But equally, any potato... They put them in a bag now and they call them microwave. Yeah, exactly. Potatoes, yeah. But, you know, any of those potatoes, large or otherwise, cut mm. them down. They'll cook in a very short space of time, about seven to eight minutes on those sort of small little baby-sized potatoes. And they're so versatile. And actually, something that's worth pointing out is they're low in fat and high in vitamin C. So they are good for us and they were our stable. So let's get them back into yeah, the people, stable. People condemned the potato because of the carbs. But sure, like, I mean, we, we need carbs to survive. And, uh, you know, if you're eating pasta and rice, you're there anyway. Yeah, there's, not, there's nothing new in terms of nutrition. You know, for the last three years, you'd think to yourself, protein was just invented because <laughs> it's absolutely everywhere. It was always there and we know what our body needs it for. And the same in carbohydrates. But I think that they're easy to dig- digest you know, when you get a potato, regardless of how you eat it. And you always feel, I kind of think, for me anyway, safe when you eat a potato because there's memories, there's childhood memories. And I think most people can relate to that because there's nothing nicer than boiled potatoes, butter running off them, a bit of parsley and salt and leave me alone and I'm happy. Listen, I'm, I'm with you. I love this picture that you sent in to us of your mother. Now, she has a great big pile of potatoes in a pot. They're cooked, peeled and cooked. And she's about to mash them, but they're on the floor. The pot is on the floor and she's about to mash them. What's going on there? You know, every professional kitchen in Ireland will be saying you never put food anywhere near the floor. But my mum believes it's the safest place to mash a pot of potatoes. And she's right. She now, is bear right, really. I, didn't, I didn't think of it yeah. before, but she is right. And, and, and she, you can see in the picture that she's got grandchildren running around. So grandchildren are nosy and they look up and they can't see up to the worktops. So she drops it down. But I think there's actually a bit of theatre in what she was doing as well because all of a sudden everybody know dinner's nearly ready because what's the last thing you're going to mash yeah, the is the potatoes. And I don't know, Claire, I love this piece that, you know, particularly regionally, everybody calls potatoes different things. You know, you'll hear them called purdies in Donegal. Uh, And she's got this thing which was for mashing the potatoes called a beetle. Now, some people relate to that. It's literally the handheld, which has, you know, either the holes in the bottom or just straight bars. A potato masher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> call it a so beetle. if okay. you got a lump in your potato, it was called, you know, it juked the beetle. So it missed it. <laughs> So she would literally <laughs> take them back off the plate, back into the pot and really? remash them again. But she's a great, she's a great woman. I she don't knows how to cook a, potato. I don't use a beetle or a potato masher anymore because your friend of mine, Nevin Maguire, yeah. told me about the potato ricer. Yeah. And that's what I do. I think he's half the country onto these ricers, Listen, doesn't he? Uh, you, there is never a lump to be found since I started using that, that thing. It's yeah, great. Yeah, and they are great because they do rice it. Can I tell you something funny? I have his car today because we were working together this morning <laughs> at the RDS. He's about to go live on stage and guess what happened? I've got the ingredients for his demo in his car ah, in the Archie car park. So <laughs> anyone who's going to see Nevin Maguire today, he has nothing for you. Yeah, we have all he, of his stuff talk. here. <laughs> and he may, he may have a, a rice masher for his potatoes. Well, they listen to Nevin chatting away anyway. Ah, poor Nevin. So let's talk mash. The perfect mash is the place to start with potatoes, I think, in general. You know, and to me, the perfect mash was watching my mother doing it on the floor and lots of butter. But then when I went to catering college, I thought, OK, this will be different because, you know, I was taught by the master who grew up surrounded by the potatoes. And then as I got on in life, I realised potatoes need butter, they need milk. And one of the secrets is if you actually heat that off to the side, the milk and the butter, maybe a bit of cream if you want, and season that. So when you drain the water out of the potatoes, return them to the heat 
turn the heat on and let the base of them dry out a little bit. You'll be shocked at the amount of moisture that comes up and escapes and gives you a drier potato, which means that you're mm. going to get a better mash. And then give it a mash or two um, or through your ricer and then add in the liquid to that and just continue to beat that through. And you'll get that beautiful mash that's, let's be honest, it's really rich. And Yeah. I, Mary Barry, I know, because I, I was reading a book um, that, that she had mm. written and she recommended heating the milk as well. But I just find when you get to that point in the dinner, you're sort of tight on time. Yeah, and you'll just mash and... you just and throw in the cold milk and the yeah, butter. Yeah, and also you think of your kids and, you know, and you say, God, well, they'll just have potatoes. Will they have the butter? I love it. It's luxurious. But if that's the case, just mash them, but still team them. Team them is when you oh, remove... Oh, mine go mad for the butter and the, yeah. and the milk, yeah. But add it into the bowl afterwards. I tend to just take another bit of butter and a knob of it and stick it on the top and let it melt on the potatoes. More, and it's just, more oh, butter absolutely. on top absolutely. of the butter you put in yeah, already. Yeah, totally. Love it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you have some great recipes um, for us. So we've gone through the mash. We know how to do the mash mm. now at this stage. Oh, listen, I want to ask you about um, the different varieties first before we come to the recipes because there's controversy around this. Rooster is the hardy one, isn't it? Yeah. Tough and, guy. Yeah, and you'll see a bit of pinkness and redness in it and mainly associated with roasting. Um, the reason being is, the you know, the sugars in it will turn quicker. They'll go browner. Chips and anything like that. That's what a roaster or a rooster is perfect for. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we have people, um, I know from back in my house where I grew up, who loved a flowery potato. Yeah, and, you know, we've all drove the country and saw the signs less now than we used to, but, you know, you know, you'll see it, balls of flour, you know, yeah. potatoes for sale. And it still makes you stop to this day and kind of go, because there's a story behind that. There's a farm in the background. And, you know, to me, I was always taught with potatoes, there's there's earlies, there's second earlies, and then there's main well, crop. You're now, you're an expert. Yeah. But the floury potato, is it not a bit dry? Uh, I, I don't think so because you can cook it, you know, with the skin on and, and sometimes, you know, how, when do you decide when to leave the skin on or off? Well, if they're early potatoes and they're new potatoes, the skin, you know, it, it's a lot lighter. And even in the preparation of that, yeah. literally, you just scrub them. You know, take your little green skewer that hasn't been used for any dishes, um, a nice clean one, keep it for your potatoes, cold water in the sink, tip them in, give them a light scrub and then into boiling water with a pinch of salt in it. You'll find an average sized potato will cook in about... 15 to 18-ish minutes. And the secret is when they're new, take them off just as there's still a little bit of firmness in them as you test them with a knife and drain them immediately because leaving them for five minutes in that water, you can end up with potato soup rather you, than mashed do you, potatoes. Do you steam now or do you boil? Your I'm not a like fan of the steaming, yeah, because, okay. you know, um, for me, I think you get more flavour in the boiling in general. And that, that could be just a personal thought of mine, but that's what I tend okay. to stick to. Now, the fancy stuff, dauphinoise. Yeah, I love dauphinoise. Oh, Why? Fabulous. They're rich, they're full of fat, Gorgeous. full of butter, full of cheese. So what are they? Okay, it took me years to pronounce them. Never knew how to pronounce it until I went to catering college uh, and knew what they were. But they're basically those beautiful layered potatoes cut really thin. And in between you have cheese and you have a garlic milk so so what do you do to make them? Cut them really thin, almost that you can see through them when you're slicing them. Maybe that's back to your, your food processor that we talked about a few or weeks a, ago. Or a mandolin. Or a mandolin if you mm -hmm. have one, you know, put the safeguard on it and away you go. And then put your, your cream or milk, it tends to be milk with garlic in it. Season that up and maybe even a bay leaf into it and let it infuse. What does that mean? Don't boil it. Let the flavours come together and then drain them in. Start layering how much, the potatoes. How much milk are you using? Because I always like to sort of guess when I'm doing it. Yeah, you know what? As my mum always says, there were scales in people's arms before there were scales because they guessed with their arms She's and just right. poured it in. But the thing about it, Claire, is just cover the potatoes. You know, you're not teaching them to swim. So the right amount of liquid that's warm liquid into the potatoes. Layer them, continue. You'll go about eight or ten layers in this. Season between each layer 
a bit, a bit, particularly pepper, maybe not so much the salt because you've got cheese going on there. And then you can line your dish if you want with tinfoil and butter that. And it's into a really long kind of bake on that to crisp them up with a final cheese layer. I tend to do them the day before, tip them out, remove the tinfoil. And that's what you'll see in these fancy restaurants where they're cut or there's a little bun cutter cutting them in little discs. Yeah. But I usually cut them like a little sort of finger as if you're having an afternoon mm -hmm. tea. And then line them up on your tray and just warm them for your dinner party or for, you know, at home eating the next day. Definitely don't want too much liquid on them if you're doing that. No, but when they sit and you leave them and you leave them to go cool, what'll happen is the liquid will absorb right into the potatoes and you'll be left Gorgeous. with no liquid. They are sensational. Yeah, delicious. Brian McDermott from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Ray Darcy was wondering, is there any end to TV presenter and educator Emer O'Neill's talents? Oh, is there no end to Emer O'Neill's talents? Uh, not only did she help us keep in shape with Homeschool Hub during COVID, she's been busy presenting her own TV shows and co-hosting the St. Patrick's Day coverage and reporting into um, the afternoon show. Is it called the afternoon show? The Today Show. Today. Yeah, the Today yeah. Show, sorry. Uh, now she has decided to throw her hat into the ring to represent Ireland at next year's Eurovision Song Contest. Good afternoon, Emer. We will talk to you about the Eurovision presently, but first, okay. uh, the other reason you're in it is that you're an ambassador for this competition, uh, irevise.com, and they're looking for um, schools, secondary, level, secondary schools, and they want to recognise second level schools that actively promote well-being as well as academic performance. So just tell us a little bit about that. Correct, yes. So they are looking to give this prize out to a secondary school in Ireland um, and it's the iRevise School of the Year competition. To enter, you enter with a three minute video of, you know, the stuff you're doing in school in terms of health and well-being, sustainability might get you extra points too. So irevise.com because I know it, yeah. uh, a lot of teachers are in their cars or just yeah. have arrived home, have switched on the radio. Yeah. So it's a good time. To it be is a good time. Yeah. irevise.com. If you go there, you'll find out all the details about that competition. Good stuff. What were you like at school? Um, oh, I suppose I was a little bit of a brat. <laughs> The way I always talk about it is uh, the thing that kept me in, in school was sport. That's what kept me going. That's what kept me going in. There was also a rule that you couldn't come in later in the day and go to your match still, you know, so you had to actually come ah, in for the day of school because yes, yes. we smarty pants has got the great idea. Like, we just won't go to the, uh, like school all day and we'll just come in for the match after school. Yeah, and the match was basketball, but, was it always? Uh, well, basketball, Gaelic hockey, I right. kind of, yeah, but basketball is my love. Yeah. It's where you shun. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah, I suppose I had the height. Yeah. As they say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a given then, is it? It's not, a, uh, it's not like, and that's the thing with basketball. Like one of the best players I've ever played with was tiny. She was like 5'3". Yeah. She's an amazing point guard. It's just like any sport, like rugby, you know, not everybody is like muscular and big and strong. You've got, you know, your agile. Your Peter Stringers. Exactly. Yeah. Even though he is very strong also. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's, he's quite strong. Yeah. He's about five foot. So I better not say because he could be listening. Yeah, he's about five foot seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're talking. Which, which, speaking of small and tall men and we, women, <laughs> we were talking about that before we went on we air. Were, yeah. so, so because because we have Dolly Alderton on on Monday, and she writes uh, uh, as an agony aunt, agony aunt for the Sunday Times, and I'm reading her book at the moment. Anyway, the first. Uh, letter that she responds to it's a collection of letters that she's responded to over the years yeah. uh, is from a tall woman yeah. uh, and talking about <laughs> her boyfriend who insists that she wear flats flats come on so you what can't are, be doing what that. height are you You're... so I'm six foot with like just runners on okay right um, and yeah I, like I probably the shortest guy I'd have dated would have been maybe five seven and that is a big 
difference, especially it if is, I yes, you know, if you put, put on my platforms. On. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, How did that go for you? Asher, like, look, it was fine, but it, you know, you would get stares, you know, because I would when I had the the heels on, sure, I'm like six five nearly. Yes. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like it's I don't know. We we're talking about this. It's a very shallow to not want to be with a guy because he's too small. <laughs> I don't know. My husband's six five now, so I hit the jackpot. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can wear the heels, you know. <laughs> and you have two children. I have two kids. Yeah. Go on. Kai is eight, and Sonny Ray is two. Right. Uh, now the Eurovision thing. This this completely out from, <laughs> of left field for me. Uh, yeah. So you 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 sing obviously. I sing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've sang my whole life. I'm I'm actually classically trained, um, but I my genre now would be more jazz. Uh, my my voice has changed over the years because I would have been a soprano, but I've I've gotten a lot deeper. My okay. voice, I guess, my voice broke. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yes, and I would have done a lot of musicals, and I did a lot of performances in The Mermaid, and singing would generally, okay. you know, take place. Um, and I also got to sing with a chamber orchestra, the Greystones Orchestra, a couple of years ago, and that was incredible. Um, and I've been in a couple of bands, uh, you know, and I love my old karaoke too. You can't go wrong with that. What's your karaoke tune? My song, Give Me One Reason. Or House of the Rising Sun. Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman. Correct. What, a, brilliant what song. a banger. What a brilliant right? song. Yeah. Or The House of the Rising Sun, which is also yeah. a banging tune. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like singing has been my life, basically. Uh, I wanted to go to school for singing and acting, and my mum was like, and where will the money come in and all of that? You know, sensible hat on here. Yeah. So I was like, fine, I'll be a teacher. She's like, you can do the singing for, for as fun. And I did. And I always kept it up. I even took some singing uh, courses in, in, in university. Um, but I have always obsessed over the Eurovision. I think you're a super fan too. But like, I take this very seriously. Yes. Like, I will have <laughs> my notes out on my phone. I'll be looking <laughs> at the choreography, the set design, you know, the melody, the lyrics, like, everything and I'm already trying to guess this and that and this and that and who's going to be in the finals who's mm. going to be in the you know and you've, you've probably had an opinion then why we haven't done as well as we used to do uh, yeah like it kills me I suppose the thing that I would always think I, I generally love Eurovision songs that have like a feel of that country in them you know um, that cause yeah like the Serbian just, one was brilliant yeah like I love Ukrainian that Ukrainian was great like exactly the, and like, it's shining through more and more isn't I, it and I think that's what it's all about like I love to see like the traditional instruments from from yeah. those countries mixed with contemporary contem- yeah. Yeah. yeah and like even like their own language as well yeah. I think sometimes it can become extremely Americanized, you know and then it's, it is a, a time for learning like you've got millions of people all over the world watching this is your time to kind of show the world what your country's all about and the you know the beautiful culture that lies behind your country okay. now yeah, not right. to say that my song is like extremely Irish and I won't be getting up and doing a jig or anything um, You were O'Neill <laughs> from the Ray Darcy show And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.